Hi, I'm Milton Davis, and you're listening to Microphones of Madness. Hey, everybody. Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there is Steve. Hey, yeah. And we are on the final installment of our read-through of Dreams from the Witch House, Female Voices of Lovecraftian Horror. Possibly. Yes. Edited by Lynn Jamnick and published by Dark Regions Press. Uh, these no, are the no final signatures, too. Sorry. <laughs> Apparently, there's no signatures on, on, the, on the plates. Well, I'm, I'm an evil son of a bitch. Yeah, that, that, was, that, was a, that was some fucked up bullshit there, man. Uh, I guess that's why I have an e copy. <laughs> All right, enough, enough with the disparagement. <laughs> uh, you can save that for the end if you want. All right. We are in the home stretch, the final five stories. Uh, we're going to start with, well, actually, let's, let's start with how you think the, uh, the anthology finished up. Man, this finished up really strong. Really, really strong. I was engrossed by every one of these stories. And uh, it turns out that my personal favorite in the anthology is in these. Yeah. And we will get to that. Uh, First, we're going to start with the 16th story, Spore by Amanda Downham. What would you think of that one, Steve? Um, I liked it. I, um, it was one of those things where I thought it was going one way and then it kind of juked in the middle and I kind of caught where it was going and it went there, but it wasn't, um, it it, it wasn't that twist that we were experiencing last time. Mm -hmm. This was definitely more of a straightforward, if you have, um, read enough of these stories, you kind of know where things are headed. Right. Right. But it was a fun journey getting there. Yeah. This was, this was a well-written story. Um, it played the, it played the trope straight. Um, uh, did not go necessarily the horror route. And that's one of the things about a good chunk of the last five. And even in the, in, in the entire book that it doesn't always go that, that Lovecraftian horror, even though that's what it says on the cover. Uh, we'll probably discuss that a little bit more as we get through the stories. Um, and definitely doesn't play with that whole one of those things that makes Lovecraftian fiction Lovecraftian fiction, and that is fear of other. Uh, this is more yeah, of a... This was an encounter with another that led, that led to really the embrace of the other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and that t- that takes you know weird in in the right direction. So what we have is we have an anthropologist who's on the trail of a mysterious phenomenon involving some uh, psychedelic fungus. Right, that her ex lover, who is missing, um, has put her on the trail of. Mm-hmm. 
and as we come not to find out, is one of the distributors of said fungus. Yes. And it's really more of a, a breadcrumbs, I guess. It's like, come and find me, and I'm going to put yeah, you on this, you know, this voyage of discovery, you know, discover the unknown. Yeah, but and, I don't think it's it's like, I don't think she knew that in the beginning, because I'm looking at my notes, and in the beginning of the story, my notes are like, Dora, who is the mysterious ex-lover who's missing, mm-hmm. Dora's not your friend, <laughs> are my notes. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> right. Don't do right. that. And it, and it does. <laughs> it, it starts off, it starts off, and Dora is, or Dr. Munoz. She's doing ethnography. She's right. interviewing people who have taken this drug and uh, trying to put piece together the experience. And, and uh, personally, like a phenomenal experience where you, you have, have shared dreams and and miraculous things happen to you, right? And uh, which places she, it and, in the and, category of the entheogen rather than uh, just your average pharmaceutical recreational substance, right? It's it's almost like a, uh, and I, I'm honestly kicking myself for saying this because um, earlier today we were talking about Stephen King and how a lot of horror writers are going to be compared to Stephen King because he's a touchstone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hate to compare people, but you have to have like some sort of, of, of foothold where people can grasp relative to, to you have read it, but, you, but, other people haven't. You have to have a, a touchstone, really. So here we go. Mine is Philip K. Dick. That idea of that shared psychedelic reality mm-hmm. where one one entity, one person, actually has dominance over the whole zeitgeist right. of the shared experience. And you find that in this story. Mm-hmm. It also has a little uh, touch of Carlos Castaneda in there as well. Mm-hmm. If well, I think Carlos, if Carlos had been playing playing his book straight instead of going into this like really, really you know, ornate and uh, trippy narrative, if he had just like I'm going here to study this thing, yeah, I think Dick took a lot from Casanata personally. Right. I don't think that's documented. It might be, but there's definitely similar ideas. Of uh, the use of pharmaceuticals and collective unconsciousness, mm-hmm. and you know, like I said, it's 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 a classic example of the weird style. Um, but I think I think it's when we are finally shown Dora's actual motivation is where this story really starts to shine and stand out in, in the. You know, collection of various Lovecraftian style stories we've read. I agree. Like I said, the the other is actually becomes um, something that you you wind up being um, wanting. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a positive expression. Yeah, um, it's you know it would almost be akin to finding out that you um, that your gender that you were assigned to is at birth is not the gender that you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
where, where you are embracing that the otherness as opposed to opposing that otherness. Right, right. And to to compare it into that Lovecraftian trope of the scientist exploring the unknown, it's an acceptance of the other rather than the resistance or the acceptance of reality as it truly is rather than resisting it and uh, becoming a shrinking violet and uh, getting the vapors in your office. It's almost like the Olmstead ending in, uh, in, in, in Smouth. Yeah, kind of. But with, but without that factor of, having been repulsed through 99% of the story and at, then at the end going, Oh, I love it. I'm going to the deep to live forever. Right. Right. There's, there's no real repulsion in this story at all with the exception of maybe the character, the main character's own feelings. Yeah. There's disbelief, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and self doubt. Yeah. But there's no real horror at that. No. Some, and some of the things that in other hands that that she's describing here could be, you know, there's a lot of potential body horror that is handled in a way so it's not horrific. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was a great lead-off to this final five. Uh, the next story on the list is Christine Morgan's Pippa's Crayons. Um. This is kind of a short but sweet retelling of the color out of space through the perspective of a small child. Yeah, that's actually exactly what I wrote. (laughs) Um, Who's the granddaughter of the original narrator of the story. Right. And, you know, she has crayons that her grandpappy said that uh, he made from a piece of the color that fell off. Yeah, or the mud from the from the bottom of the reservoir or something. Yeah. That was um, a little piece, a, a little piece when, it, when the color went up out of the well, uh, mm-hmm. the fragment that had fallen back was, uh, what he made the crayons out of. There you go. Right. Now, the interesting thing about this story is there is no real narration. This is, this story is told entirely through dialogue. Yeah. Uh, there is no, you know, the child scribbled furiously on the paper or anything like that. It's just dialogue. Yeah, what are you drawing? Pictures. Can I see? Oh, how nice. Is that your house? No, it's a farmhouse. Right. A farmhouse, yes, I see that. And it just it goes on like that. But it's not it's not um trite. And it's it's not um it doesn't look down on the characters it, it, it's not that kind of story right there's no sense of irony or or anything like that it, it literally is a two-page retelling of the color out yep. of space very straightforward very straightforward um in, in fact you know as much as i kind of i liked the concept um it was just it seemed a little out of place in this section it is the only one in the entire um, anthology so far that has that you need a priori um, knowledge of a story to get. Yes. Um, If you haven't read the color out of space, you would look at this story and just go, what did I just read? Exactly. But this, this one is, this one 
as much as I don't want to say it, this one's for the fans. Yeah, fortunately, I've read The Color Out of Space. <laughs> right, and the color that the piece that fell off when it exited the well actually ended up in Siberia to kill off our RP characters. Yep. That happened once, yep. I like I like the idea that it was made into crayons better. Yeah. Sorry, Lehman. All right. Uh, the next is probably, I think we agree that this is one of our favorites in the book. Man. And that is The Wreck of the Charles Dexter Ward uh, by Sarah Manetto and Elizabeth Bear. Local author, Elizabeth Bear. Really now? Yeah, she's she's a she's a mass hole. Ah, yeah. You better you better enunciate that correctly. You don't want anybody to uh, get confused. Well, I've never met her, so I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, not only is this story uh, one of the best in the books, but I think this is the logical extension of a mythos universe. Um, yeah, because you know you have you have Lovecraft and you have a lot of his imitators um, and a lot of the pastiche that keeps up this this uh, idea that any scholar who encounters this nature of reality and all the weird shit that goes on, you know, either goes insane or you know becomes a hermit and things like this. But given just the way you know, human minds are diverse. Eventually it's going to run, somebody's going to run across it. They can go, yeah, I can use that and do something with it. And then now we have a universe where we have living ships. We've, we've followed into, gone into space. You know, we're aware of the Mego. We're aware of all of these things and seems to be fairly common knowledge these days. Oh yeah. You have, you have extra dimensional creatures who are, who are basically pest control on sh- on spaceships, mm-hmm. and and the the extra dimensional uh, creatures, the the existence of extra dimensional space seems to affect the technology as well, and and I would imagine that's how these ships travel, is that they zip in and out of these little, you know, corner spaces and whatnot. You have different factions. You have the actual the uh, the staff at Arkham. Mm-hmm. Or Miss Miskatonic, sorry. Right. The, 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 the staff at Miskatonic seems to have a very strong presence in, in uh, the space lanes, and they've mm-hmm. taken their studies to 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 the stars. Take, go but directly like, to the source. But they're a cult of academics, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're and they're very insular as well. And each each space each one of these spaceships. Is like one of the towns in a Lovecraft story. Yeah, they have clan other, names. Yeah, they have clan names, and they're all isolated. They don't like outsiders. Yeah. It's like every single yeah, terrestrial idea we find in these types of stories is there, but it's out in space. Yeah, it's it's really clever too. She's they, they've named um, a lot of the things after uh, stuff you find in Lewis Carroll. Stuff mm-hmm. you find in Lovecraft, um, stuff you find in different um, 
pioneering physicists and, and chemists, like just just the research done to just name things. It's really good. And, and one of the really interesting things is that Caitlin R. Kiernan gets a shout out as well. Yes. Uh, one yes. of the ships is named after her. Who is that? She, she wrote one of the stories way back from week one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was that was an interesting little thing. Um, yeah, and this pulls you in really well. It, 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 it's one of those things where it, it just jumps in. There's no all the explanation, everything you need to know just happens along in the text. Right. So, so you don't have the big conversational info dumps that you don't have like, you don't have like the uh, space adjective right. descriptions of everything. Grab the space window to go out the space lock. You don't have that kind of cheesy stuff that you'll see in a lot of this. It's, <clears throat> it's, it's done really well. Now, without giving too much away, because I really don't want to spoil this story at all for anyone because it's just that great of a story, but this, this is like a mashup with um, Herbert West Reanimator, um, Event Horizon, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just... it's Hounds of Ten Dollars. A little bit of Hounds of Tindalos. You know, there's so many influences coming into and play I, here. And I'll tell you, there's some Gene Wolf in there. Remember yeah. that story I was telling you about? Mm-hmm. In, uh, it, it's in the, the book I gave you, uh, in uh, Endangered, Endangered Species, species. About, about a uh, dead man in floating a spacesuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called offhand. But I swear there's some of that in this book. Just really, really well done. Yeah, and it's a fascinating world, and I believe you said there's a couple more stories set in the same universe? Yeah, this is the third in a series of three. Um, when we when we put this up as a podcast, I'll make mm-hmm. sure that you have the, the proper information to link that. Well, actually, what I think we should really do is we should uh, pull those two stories and do an episode on those two. We can do that. And maybe even reread the third one as well and just do an episode on the trilogy. Okay. It's a deal. All right. Yeah. So wreck of the Charles Dexter war. Sorry. Sorry, Molly. I think up until this point, Molly's was my favorite. <laughs> well, but, um, sorry, it's, Molly. It's, it's those, it's, it's really cause you know, not signing those sheets. I know I'm an I'm an asshole. <laughs> this yeah. will all be everybody be laughing at this later uh, on after I got it all blows over. I got nothing. Um, yeah. So the next one on the list, this is the second to last story, and this is from the cold dark sea by Storm Constantine. We're going to use the the British pronunciation. Um. Yeah this this story is about silk cuts and trench coats. No. It's not. Not that I would be you opposed want, to that. You wanted it to be, though, didn't you? <laughs> no, the, the author is all about silk cuts and trench coats. Now, here's this one's interesting as well. This is another uh, refreshing take on the deep ones. Um, yeah. And this one 
doesn't rely on any of the horror, any of the uh, fear of the other or anything. This is just a straight fantasy tale. It takes those those tropes of um, you know isolated communities, ancient civilizations, forbidden books, and instead of taking and making it horror and in a sense of revulsion at these things, there's there's actually a sense of wonder, right? Uh, that it, goes along with this, and it actually it, turns out to be a very beautiful story. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a complete inversion of of the shadow over Innsmouth mm-hmm. and all the subsequent Innsmouthian tales that you'll bother to read. Um, I mean, you, even even like the the protagonist is so typically Lovecraftian. Just at heart, she she repairs old books. Right. I mean, not that Howie's ever had that as an occupation of one of his characters, but it should have been. Yes. <laughs> um, but she loves her job, and as she's there's these aren't like. She's not having these nightmares as she's dealing with this book. She's entranced by it. It's beautiful to her. It's not like this sick temptation that you see in a lot of these types of stories, you know, where, where you know, everything becomes a nightmare. Right. Uh, I think the closest thing to horror is, you know, this realization of the deep one spawning and coming to ground as the children of the village and it being this like part of the natural environment where you know, the predators are coming in and, you know, snatching them up and stuff. And I think that's really the closest it comes to horror. Right. Yeah. I mean, these guys are like about as deep ones as, as the, the mermaids and Ponyo are. Right. And everybody's so nice. Except, except for yeah. the uh, seemingly normal human teenage girl. Yeah, well, I mean, she's a teenage girl, right? <laughs> so she she goes to this castle to to restore this old book that uh, is is de- near and dear to the uh, inhabitants of the castle, and and the the book draws her into it. But like you said, not in a in a oh my god. I'm seeing the sunken city. The end is nigh kind of way. It, it's intriguing. Oh my God. Fish people. Ew, gross. Yeah. It's, it's, it's intriguing. And, uh, she, she, she wants more, but you know what? She doesn't like sit and flip through the book until she gets to the end and gets all the discoveries at once. She does her job. And as it comes, it comes. Mm-hmm. She's like in, in complete control of herself. Yep. She even goes and visits the town and you know, yeah, these are, where everyone looks like the narration of the story is there's no like raving. There's no, it's, it's, it's kind of matter of fact. And, and, and the character is really just stunned to discover these things. So this, now, this you know, hidden world. There is a certain amount of a creep factor involved in this. I mean, it's not all like sea anemones and octopi mm-hmm. down there. I and mean, there's definitely a, a creep factor 
of like all the girls in the village look the exact. They look the same, and they're, they're off. They're, they're they're off. And and I'm not saying it's like horror right there. It doesn't make you go want to run screaming, but it is unnerving. It didn't didn't read that way to me. You know, I think the initial, I think the initial shock uh, of meeting um, was Minnie uh, wore off really quick, uh, and yeah, she just kind of accepted it and and even commented that uh, you know Minnie and you know all of her sisters and whatnot are all beautiful in their own way. And I, I kind of like where she's uh, she's she's restoring the books. She's talking to Minnie, and she just blurts out, "You look like a mermaid." <laughs> and and Minnie just hikes up her skirt and says, "Look, see, no fishtail. You know, I got normal feet." <laughs> and you know, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I didn't really get the creep factor that you did out of it. I just got kind of a you know, this is a, almost kind of a whimsical tale. In, in my mind, I think that perhaps because of the subject matter, that might have contributed to it, to like the creepiness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not saying that it was. It, it wasn't a touching tale. I'm just saying that elements of it were creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yes, they all had like, you know, fantastic matter of fact, fantastic explanations. Right. And I don't want to ruin the ending. Um, but it, it certainly didn't end the way I thought it was going to end. No, it was it was definitely a very atypical end. And uh, story. But yeah, and it might have been it might have been. Prejudice because I've read Insmouth and I've read a lot of Insmouth, you know, tales set in Insmouth. It might be mm-hmm. misdirection on the part of the author. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if it was, it works for me. I mean, because I was creeped out and expecting something to happen. But it, what ended up happening is like the inversion of what happens at Insmouth. Right, and and this one this one has more in common with the litany of Earth than it does uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth. Yeah, but still a, a great story, um, minus the secret government conspiracies. Right, right, yeah, no, um, but yeah, this is this is a great way, and and really, I could have ended the book right here, and been like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But we get one more. Yeah, you had a uh, Star Creek. I mean, <laughs> sorry, this last story reminded me of it of Star Creek. Uh, yeah, and and I really don't know how. I, I guess it's Memneros. 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 Memneros yeah. by R. A. Whoever, whatever language, I think it's Greek. Uh, came up with that MN beginning to a word. Fuck y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Go take a loyalty oath, you bastards. Um, seriously. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, we, it couldn't even be fixed in in later later additions to other languages. It, it right. stayed. And so fucking fucked up. But this story is written by R. A. Kalen. This is uh, this is her debut, and this is a bit of a weird western. Yeah, definitely very Howard-esque, and I mean R. H. Howard, not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not Howie Lovecraft, but uh, Robert. Um, it also it oh. also kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, the way Pete Rollick tells stories as well. Yeah. But it, it definitely had that down-home feel to it, mm-hmm. where in, instead of, of, you know, the the enclosed spaces of New England, right. the forests and the towns, you had wide open plains with uh, or prairie with, you know, the occasional building propping up a ghost town. A, mm-hmm. a uh, shadow haunted river. Yep, and uh, Menemoros is actually a new Lovecraftian deity, or not one that I'm. Yeah, familiar. new great old one. Yeah. But yeah, I think she made it out. It's a great old one. Yeah, it was kind of late to the party. Right, <laughs> the runt of the litter. <laughs> uh, Kind of appears on Earth. It's the reveal. The reveal. Yo, 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 Yig, wait up, Yig, wait up. Wait up. Ah, I'm on fire. I'm on fire. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, um appeared and finally arrived on Earth after the stars weren't right anymore. Right. Which is great. He did. You know, he was the great old one equivalent of uh, Indiana Jones, like sliding under the slide under the door just as it's closing. Right. Or, or rerun. rerun. Chasing after the truck during the opening <laughs> sequence for what's happening. Oh, dear. <laughs> with more with more fire and tentacles. Right. Well, he was, he was it was uh, on fire. If you imagine rerun on fire. So mm-hmm. it's Richard Pryor. Was oh rerun. My. Oh my goodness! I had to go there. Hey man, he went there. That's true. That's true. It is real. Um. Yeah. So what you have is, is you know, young girl is you know growing up in this part of Texas. Uh, we only had two television channels and. Uh, town was hours away so we had to make our own entertainment right so you get you kind of get the the feeling this takes place in the 70s mm. yeah and then uh you know, we're going we're going through she's exploring she hears from an old riverman you know about these unusual stones that are tied to a local legend and it's like oh you know shit i gotta go check that shit out but the legend is cool so mm. it, like the the boss of the town because the town's named after him or the founder of the town builds a saloon out of the corpse basically of this great old one right because that's what you do hey if you're in texas you that's can, what you, you do can. if you can do that you can do that and uh this doesn't sit well with its um worshiping population 
Right. Which is which is also uh, kind of implied to be part of him anyway. Right. Almost kind of a, a, a glocky kind of thing going on. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, so they come into town in the middle of the night and raise it and take back their their uh, their god's corpse, yep. which is now a building. Mm-hmm. But, but the stones bleed, this black ichor. Yes. That is a rumored black, to be poisonous to the touch. A black sentient ichor. Enter. As, and as she's going to explore these these stones, you know, just for curiosity, uh, we just happen to run into uh, a professor from Arkham, Massachusetts, someone from the Miskatonic That's University. Where they are, because you know when you need a when you need a professor, Miskatonic. When you got stones that bleed black ichor, who are you gonna call? Well, them? you know, people at Yale aren't doing that. That's get their right. fucking man- they get their managers cracked, right? And um, yeah, so she meets a, a professor of uh, archaeology and folklore and mythology and things of this nature. I wonder because everybody in at Miskatonic U has like two or three degrees. Yeah, well, I wonder if um, her choice of professor was influenced by Pete Rollick. What, Mister Peasley? Professor Peasley. Uh, Peasley is a, a Rollick favorite. Mm-hmm. Now, Professor Peasley is there to have a look at these stones. He knows all about. It. He knows the whole shtick. I mean, there's nothing that you know she can't she can't like deny anything. He already knows. It. He's a professor. He's a professor. He's got hell. He's got pictures. You know, some some photo, you know, Xerox copies of the stones themselves and he's, she's like oh well uh uh well you don't really want to go down there you, know, you don't have the right like driving a, he's driving a charger right like a dodge Fort charger for fairlane right and he was like yeah <laughs> oh yeah um, Sorry, and, and we get to just like see this guy, this fucking guy, cruising around in the fucking heat of Texas in the middle of summer in a in brown tweed. Fort Fairlane and tweed with patches. Excuse me, young lady. Excuse Do you know what you Do you know where the sentient bleeding stone are? <laughs> oh man, it's hilarious. It's great. It's I'm great. a Call of Cthulhu character played by Wesley James Young. <laughs> uh, there's a scalp in it for you if you can show me where they live. Because I'm just going to go up and I'm going to charm the shit out of her. And if I do, I'll lar. That's a fine, fine horse you got there. Please tune into our gaming sessions on Mondays and Saturdays. Yeah, and, and prepare to be offended. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so he kind of corral- – and he has a lot of money, too. Oh, yeah, fuck. He's got, like, a wad of cash, and it's old cash. Right. He's been, like, saving this under his mattress since, like, the Great Depression or something. And, you know, it's like he's – probably, he's probably selling the mushrooms from Spore. Oh, 
It's like, yo, man. No, no, I'm sorry. I got some mushrooms here for you. Real mild, expanding stuff. <laughs> Traffic in the Grateful Dead are going to be in town, and you're going to need this. That's right. It is the 70s. It is. And this is the, he doesn't seem to you know, this is not a disco town. This is more of a dead town. <laughs> it is Texas. But I just, huh, I just got back from the Grateful Dead. I got tons of cash. There is, I think it's in Lubbock. There's this great concert from the dead from like 77 from Lubbock, which mm-hmm. is like one of, considered one of their best shows ever. So, And it's all thanks to Professor Peasley. That's right. Peasley, man. Peasley and the spore mushrooms. That's right. I've got to hear from my, my, my college lab at Miskatonic University. <laughs> Bet you didn't know Jerry Garcia was an outer god. Um, yeah. And and then hijinks really ensue. I mean this story the story shifts from being kind of, you know, almost you know, almost in the way we were describing Star Creek as going from, you know, oh kind of lazy Saturday afternoon to holy shit, everything's yeah, gone just fucking like- nuts. As soon as they, as soon as as they meet up and and get their deal together, it's it builds up for a little while in the form of the horse getting spooked. Mm-hmm. So you have like the small buildup of the horse getting squirrelier and squirrelier, and then finally they reach this place, and the professor just wesses out. Yeah, he, I'm gonna go and touch it. <laughs> oh, the raging river! Screw that shit. <laughs> oh, by the way, the black hand. Yeah, he's already done this before. <laughs> yeah, he's done this before, and and we're not going to say any more about that because that was spoiler. And and really, yes, the, the way spoiler. the way the ending is written, it's breakneck breakneck pacing. You get this um, great you, chase. You get this great chase sequence. I mean, you get this chase sequence straight out of Princess Mononoke. Yeah, I mean, you are you are as breathless as the character is by the time you get through it. Well, literally, she's being chased by a a huge wild hog that is dripping black goo, yeah. <laughs> which is straight out of Princess Mononoke. So you have that, and you have the confrontation of the church, which is like you know, uh, almost kind of a uh, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight type of situation. Yeah, they get to this abandoned church that she can semi board up and hide in, but not really. Right. And Being chased by not only this this huge monster pig, but the the you know children of whatever this thing's name is. No, 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 no. Children of. It was definitely a M word. Definitely, definitely yeah. M word. Plato. Yes. Rata. <laughs> Nickel. Nectar. Yeah. Nectar. Nectar. Yeah, and it's weird. There's like a little cinema. There is there are some hints as to the end and how it turns out. Contained within the text, that are they're really subtle, but they kind of stand out, right? Because 
should be going on. And then, um, like here, all of a sudden, Pistol spooks something awful, dancing sideways as though he'd seen a rattlesnake. I scanned the underbrush and saw nothing, and that just scared me more. Okay, so that's kind of how the whole thing goes. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, you don't understand, coming from the suburbs, how easily a wild thing can just disappear into the underbrush. Yep. She never, in the rest of this whole story, does she use the word you. She doesn't address the reader at all. Oh, except for the beginning. Mm, all right. But even so, it's just like, it's jolting right there. Like she's talking to somebody that she really wasn't talking to before. Right, right. And and you get the feeling that, oh, and it, it does, it's one of those types of situations where it, it does kind of spoil the end a little bit because right. you know that she survives because she's relaying the story. Right. Um, at some point in the future, probably present day, to us who are reading the story. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I thought this was a, a great ending for the book. Um, yeah, there's that. There's the Peasley with his black arm, mm-hmm. tar arm thing. Yep. Um, you know, you had the, the whole monsters and the, the kind of showdown situation. You're, you're trapped. Being trapped in, in essentially what's a wide open space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's on the plains of Texas. And the only thing that was there were was the last structure that was the ruins of this old town. Mm-hmm. And I will say, there's also some like creepy time space stuff going on. Yeah, and that's that's always fun. Yes. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's dreams from the witch house. Female yeah. voices of Lovecraftian horror. Yeah. Um, yeah, go out and grab this one. Give, uh, a, give it a read. It is available from Dark Regions Press. You can. Um, it was part of their their Cthulhu Mythos e bundle, mm-hmm. which is well worth getting. Just, just, just.